Good morning, family. Man, wasn't wasn't that sweet? Ah, just I I love I love saying true things about God to God in worship with you. That was just sweet. So thank you. I I, I love. I kind of sit more at the front, and I love hearing most of the voices behind me. You know, coming and and worshiping. So that was that's awesome. Hey, uh, most of you probably know that we are a part of a, of a larger family called the Christian and Missionary Alliance, right? And, uh, and, and so as the Alliance, we, we have, we're sort of like broken up into different regions around the country called districts. And a few weeks ago, I sat down with our district superintendent uh, and, and talked to him and had a conversation with him about some of, uh, you know, some recent decisions that we've made at sort of a denominational level. Uh, and so I want you to listen in on that conversation. And then afterwards, I'm going to share a message to talk about what that means for us. Watch this. Hey, family. Uh, I, I want to introduce you to somebody. This is Monty Wright. He is uh, the big cheese, the, the head, the, the boss, the bishop. Uh, for the Alliance Northwest, uh, for our you know this this corner of the country for the CMA, and uh, so Monty, thanks for being here. Uh, uh, Jim, so good. Um, thanks for the accolades. Wow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel important now. Yeah, so well, let's, you, let's go. Yeah, you, yeah. you are. <laughs> tell us. Uh, I don't think you've ever met our family before, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? No, nope. I know I know staff, but yeah. uh, I don't know the whole family. Uh, so a little bit uh, of my a little bit of my journey here. Most recently, before I came to DS, I wasn't too far away from you. Um, I had planted Snoqualmie Valley Alliance in uh, 1999. So that's where I was previous to that. But even getting into that sphere, uh, my wife and I, Amy and I, uh, we hit church planting when we were pretty young. So the first church we planted in South Seattle was around, uh, I was 21 years old. Wow. So did not know what I was doing. Um, The second plant was in Issaquah, Washington, and I was 26, and three buddies from Bible College, we got together to plant that one. That was our first Alliance Church, so that's uh, when I came into the Alliance, 1990, 1991. Uh, You've been a part of the Alliance for a long time. Just give me, you know, what do you love about the Alliance family? Uh, I would say the things that sold me and still sell me on why why the CNMA, I, I think the first is this. I think one of the greatest gifts the CNMA has given the, the evangelical world is our, our Christocentricity. Everything truly is centered on the personal work of Jesus. The fourfold gospel flows from Jesus. And so, I mean, it's not just like, here's how you get saved. It's like, no, Jesus is salvation. If you have Christ... You have salvation, or maybe a better way to say that, salvation has you. Yeah. It's not a formula. Um, and so the same thing with sanctification. Is it a reform project of trying to become holier, or is it Christ? No, Christ is our holiness. Christ is our sanctification, and he's making us what he's already called us. Yeah. Christ, our healer, that the Holy Spirit is alive and well with all the gifts working in the church to not only have a healthy church, but to have a healthy and transformed society. Christ, our coming king, that he's coming back and we have a task, and that's to depopulate hell everywhere. Uh, so, so let's transition a little bit. Um, our, uh, our, our Alliance family, specifically, we're going to be talking today about uh, you know, some recent decisions made uh, related to women in ministry. Uh, yeah. um, but before we get to that decision, let's look back a little bit further. Uh, why don't you just share a little bit about what, is, what has been the, the role of women in ministry kind of in the Alliance history? What was interesting is I look at the, uh, the Evangelical Missionary Alliance embedded in the Constitution, A.B. wrote... Even there, we need 100,000 more women to send overseas. So even in the Constitution saying, women, if you're out there, we need to send you. This has been men and women. A.B. A. B. Simpson's urgency to reach the world for Christ was like, let's go. Yeah. Men and yeah. women, what has God called you to? Is he calling you overseas? We will equip you. We will send you. So that's the movement that I love. But as you look over the ministries, not only globally, uh, because... I would say initially most of the missionaries were women, planting churches, pastoring churches globally. Um, 
similar uh, somewhat in the U.S., more men in pastoral roles in the U.S., but still a lot of women. So we look historically, we've seen women planters, uh, church planters all over the U.S. We've seen women DSs in my role. Um, there's not a lot, but there's, there's been a few. We have seen the empowering of women uh, in every area of the Alliance from preaching and teaching and ministering. Again, it was more based around giftings, right? Yeah. What has the Spirit gifted? If He's given you the gift of preaching, preach. And A.B. would go back to the prophecy of Joel being um, fulfilled at the day of Pentecost, yeah. as Peter said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So if she's got the gift, let her, let her preach. So we have seen historically uh, women in, in every, every role. Yeah. That's a little bit of the history. Um, yeah. More recently, um, you know, we gathered together just a few months ago uh, as an alliance you know, family leadership. And we made some significant decisions that kind of relates to uh, women in ministry, kind of you know, clarifying maybe mm-hmm. uh, so, some uh, really titles. Yeah. You know, and how women tap. Yeah. So you tell us a little bit about um, what, what those decisions were recently. Yeah, that's that was a long journey. Yeah. Um, I really felt John did a good job of continually listening to the whole family. When it comes to women in ministry, um, in some spaces it can get it can get divisive. Yeah. And so there there is a group that that doesn't believe that women should be pastors or, and there are groups that interpret the scriptures differently that believe they do. I think if we've learned anything over these last three years of, of conversations, it's, it's to be able to honor each other to say, it's not like there's one group that's biblical and another group that's progressive. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, these are two groups that are looking and searching the scriptures. They stand on the authority and the infallibility and the inerrancy of scripture. And they're doing their exegetical work, but they are they are coming to two different conclusions yeah, on, yeah. on this. So I think I think that's been the part of the journey where I've tried to major on is like everyone's trying to be true to the text. We're we're reading this differently. So let's I think we can still link arms. So as we got to that conversation in the vote, what we really voted on was a were a couple key things, particularly when it comes to women in ministry. One was instead of having two terms for women who complete the ministerial study process to become uh, leaders, women would be consecrated and men would be ordained. Mm -hmm. That, we ran into a number of problems with that, particularly with women chaplains who needed to be ordained and no one understood our word of consecration, right? So it's the same process, it's the same outcome. And so the movement was that men and women, all of us, when, when anyone finishes and passes, that they would be ordained. Where they actually went was teaming them. Men and women would be consecrated, set apart, and ordained. Yeah. So we voted on, we voted on that. And so uh, women going through the process now are, and men, same, the same titling there. And it's always been the same process. Same so process, different same titles, class, now we same, have the same test. Title. Yeah, so it's, it's the same. And I think one of the important pieces that we've talked through was that process of ordination. It's it's like when you when you graduate with your bachelor's degree. You know, we don't have a bachelor's and a bachelorette degree. Yeah, you know, yeah. we have, you, know, you get a bachelor's degree. It's it's really the same concept. You have been approved and you have successfully completed this. That's actually not a biblical understanding. That's really an educational standpoint. Yeah. They're like. There's no need for us not to have the same term, and it has caused some some issues, particularly in chaplain world. So that passed, and yeah. so we, we all have that same. The sub-area would be on the titling of pastors. So we've had titles like directors, ministers, and pastors. Um, what was voted upon was the approval to use that title pastor. That's probably one that, while it's been used, historically it wasn't a, a, an officially approved one so this sought to approve it what we did in this vote though was to honor both of those camps that exegete differently I really think we did a good job and it would would be this so if you're biblical exegesis and you look at that word poimen in the Greek shepherd is pastor and we see that in Ephesians 4 as a gift it's a gift God gives to the church it doesn't necessarily say male or female, but these are the gifts. So do you have the gift of shepherding, mm-hmm. pastoring? Um, then if, if you 
view the text that way, you can call women pastors. If you don't think that, and you think it's an office that should be relegated to men, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. So they gave us, uh, as churches, the ability to, uh, to make that to make that choice. Each church, each alliance church can choose to use that title for yep. women or not. Yeah, for women or not. Yeah. yeah. Now with that, um, that, that role of pastor, which also sort of coincides with, um, with, with the gifting, with the ability to serve in those ways, uh, there is one, you know, one thing that actually wasn't a decision. Um, it, it's sort of just a standing you know, reality right now, and that is um, the one role that a woman can't serve in mm -hmm. in the Alliance family is in the role of elder, right? Right. And since uh, a lead pastor is the lead elder, then can't serve in the, in the role of lead elder or as lead pastor as well, right? Right, correct. So yeah, uh, the, the way the denomination looks at this is uh, lead pastors and elders are, are male. Uh, board members, you know, female, you can have female on boards too, so they are at the higher level of leadership for the church. Mm -hmm. But those two specific roles, the alliance is still at, that. These are, these are male, yeah. male roles. But outside of that, outside of women that, are allowed to use their gifts, yeah. uh, all of their gifts and all of the church, yeah. right? You can have female associate pastors, you know, female youth pastors. Yeah, anywhere that you are looking for a pastor, obviously, yeah, obviously women can, can serve in those roles as pastor. God wants his sons and daughters unleashed to pursue the reason he created them and, again, to reach everyone that we possibly can. So I, I think it's important so that our daughters do know, yeah, ministry is an option for you in, in the future. So, man, this, this gives us a, a clarion call to say yes. It's not just for guys, yeah. right? Uh, so I think that's that's really important for the for the future. Um, I also think for us completing the task, the mission, the prime directive of the church to reach the world uh, for Christ, we need everybody. I'll go back to Amy Simpson. I need hundred thousand more women. Can you go? And yeah. and and so we need everybody to respond to the call. The Great Commission, you know, Matthew twenty eight is you know go into all the world it really as we know in the greek it's as you are going and he doesn't say guys as you are going <laughs> as you are going he's talking to all of us in the church male and female as you are going make disciples yeah. and so uh i feel this is another win to say male and female go and make disciples all of you move into those gifts. I also would love to see more women, you know, speaking more women in our leadership positions because we need each, we need each other. Absolutely. I think even in, we can go back to Genesis, you know, God looked at Adam and he goes, huh, he needs something else. <laughs> and, uh, hmm, so he, we, we needed Eve, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, now we have, we have a unity and a fullness. We need each other. And so at every level, we should be intersecting. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Monty, for sharing with our family. Thanks a lot. Yeah, blessings. Well, you just heard uh, Monty share uh, about some decisions, uh, right, uh, made uh, at sort of our, our you know, national denominational level, specifically about you know, titles that women can have in, in, in Alliance churches, right? So you just heard a little bit about that. Um, and after, even after hearing that, uh, there may be some there may be some confusion or, or, or concern even over the implications of that decision. So, so let me just start by addressing what this, these decisions do not mean, okay? It does not mean that our denomination or our church is heading down a path of biblical compromise. We believe, as we always have, that the Bible is God's inspired word, and we submit to its authority. And discussions around um, issues like you know, titling of women, uh, around the roles that women can have in the life and ministry of the church, really fall under a category that we would call debatable matters in the church, right? So, so here, here's how it is. In the church, there are issues that are worth dying for. There are issues to die for, Right? In fact, as you look throughout church history, and not just church history, but throughout biblical history, that there are people who have literally lost their lives. And even to this day, I know that we don't experience this so much right here in our country, but even around the world to this very day, there are people who are being put in a position to where, are you going to deny your faith or are you not? 
And in those situations, there are people who are willing to say, I'll die for my faith in Jesus, right? There are issues to die for. And there are also issues to divide for. Martin Luther, if you know your history at all, stood against errant teaching in that day. And he was willing to divide over issues that we would call orthodox beliefs. These are like unbending truths that reside at the very center of our faith. Things like the inspiration of scripture, the deity of Jesus, the the reality of the resurrection, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. These are at the very center and the core of our faith. In fact, if you took our theology or our beliefs and, and, and it was a, a target, um, our, th- those debate for, those die for things are right here at the very center. Right? Those things, those very core beliefs about who God is and what his word says and how we are saved, those are at the center of the target. And, and frankly, those are things that are willing to die for and, and if necessary, to divide for. Those things at the very center, at the very core of our beliefs. There are also issues to debate for. Issues like, do you sprinkle infants or do you dunk believers, right? Some of you come from different backgrounds on you know, how you baptize. There's an ongoing debate over what has been dubbed Arminianism and Calvinism and related to the sovereignty of God and how does that work out been going on for a long, long time. There are, there are debates over uh, the gifts of the Spirit. Are, are, are all of the gifts for today or have some of them ceased? And issues related to women and their roles in ministry are also debated for. These issues that I just mentioned and many others that are debated for fall outside the bullseye of our beliefs. They fall somewhere out here on the, on the outskirts not at the center of our faith, which is why they're debated for. They are not central to our faith, but they are scripturally debated, right? And there are people who look at all of those issues I just mentioned and many, many others and scripturally look at it and say, I think that God is saying this, or I think that the Bible means this. These fall into these things outside the center of our faith. Now, don't get me wrong. Just because something lands on the outside of the center of our faith doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that it's not central to our faith. Jesus-loving, Bible-believing people have wrestled with what the Bible has to say about women and ministry and have biblically landed in different places. And, And I just want to say this. Just because somebody says, or just because somebody believes that women should not hold the office or the title pastor, or should not teach men, does not mean that they are all women haters. Likewise, because somebody somebody believes that the Bible allows women to hold the title pastor or to preach, does not mean that they are unbiblical, liberal wackos. Okay? Our culture, our culture is so polarized, especially in these days, isn't it? It's it's us versus them. Let's not be like that in the church. In particular, things that that fall outside the bullseye in debatable matters. This is a debated issue. And here's the thing. It has been for a long, long time. This is not a new conversation. Regarding the issue of women in ministry, I have heard people warn that a decision to allow women to lead or to preach is a slippery slope leading to moral compromise. I've heard that many, many times. But here's the thing. Denominations such as the Assemblies of God, Foursquare, the Nazarenes, have all had women pastors and preachers since their inception And they have not gone down a slippery slope in their moral stand. And as you just heard in the video, the CMA has had women leading and preaching on the mission field 
and in the United States since our inception, and we have not and will not fall down any so-called slippery slope. Now, before I go on any further, I just want to stop and say something. Although it's me up here speaking today, I want you to know that I am sharing on behalf of seven pastors and elders who agree on this and have invested countless hours in prayer and study over this important issue. So in anticipation of the decision that you just saw that the Alliance made at the beginning of the summer, our elders made a decision almost a year ago regarding the titles that women can hold and the ministries they can participate in here at Smoky Point. And I just want to put it really succinctly, and then I'll explain it. We affirm the decisions of our denomination, meaning that first, we will continue to have male elders and a male lead pastor based on the qualifications for an elder that's found in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. Number two, we will celebrate any man or woman who is consecrated and ordained. And and we will give the title pastor to any man or woman who is licensed with the CMA. We also affirm the longstanding practice in the CMA that with the exception of elder, women can use all their gifts to serve in all the church including the gift of teaching. Let me say that one more time. We affirm the long-standing practice in the CMA that with the exception of elder, women can use all their gifts to serve in all the church, including teaching and preaching. So how do we arrive at these conclusions, right? Well, as I mentioned almost a year ago, now our pastors and elders dove into God's word, seeking to discern God's plan for women and ministry. I just want to mention that one essential discipline when it comes to the interpretation of God's word, and this is true in any situation that you're looking at, is to interpret individual verses through the lens of all Scripture instead of interpreting all Scripture through the lens of an individual verse. Does that make sense? In other words, you don't want to understand what does the whole of the Bible say and how does that lend itself, how does that speak to what that verse says? Does that make sense? So with that in mind, with that basic principle in mind, we approach this issue. And so our starting point was how have women been viewed and how have women been used by God throughout the Bible? (laughs) I don't have time to go through all of that. Um, I cut a ton in the preparation for this message to keep it within three hours. Just kidding. Just kidding. So I, I, just, I just have time to give you a brief overview. Let's start at the beginning. The very first chapter, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What we see from the creation account is this, that men and women are equally made in the image of God, that they are mutually blessed by God, and that they are both given authority over the earth, right? From the very beginning. And then at some point, as you continue to read on, we know, unfortunately, that they sinned. They both disobeyed God, and in different places in the Bible, both are held responsible for that. Eve was deceived and sinned. Romans chapter 5, sin came into the world through Adam. Both are sort of held responsible because the truth is they were both there and they both sinned. And, and here, the most significant thing is this, is that because of that sin, there were consequences that happened. We still experience it to this day, right? 
the brokenness of this world, and, and, and most significantly, the brokenness that, that came between relationships between men and women. Significant. Now, early in Scripture, we see God begin to use women as prophets. I don't know if you knew that or not, but God began to use women as prophets. Miriam is the very first one that is mentioned for us in the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 20. And it says this, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Now, a prophet, just so you know, a prophet was a spokesman for God, right? This is a person who would speak on God's behalf to God's people, and Miriam was one of those people. In fact, we have her words recorded for us in Scripture. In 2 Kings chapter 22, the king, the high priest, and the government officials appealed to Huldah, a woman, rather than the prophet Jeremiah, and her word is accepted as a word from God. Israel at that time was in a mess. They were in trouble, and they wanted to know, what are we to do? And so the king and the priest and all the leaders went to a woman and said, a prophet, and said, what does God say? And they received her word as a word from the Lord. Before the nation of Israel had kings, the Bible tells us that they had judges. And a married woman named Deborah was one of them. She held the highest office of leadership over men and women in Israel. And when you hear the word judge, she was a judge, you might think, well, you know, like parking tickets and stuff like that. But what we need to understand is she was a judge over the nation of Israel. And so what that means is, is that she made decisions, she led and made decisions over Israel based on her interpretation of God's law, of God's word. Her role and her calling by God to lead the nation is significant. There are many other examples, specifically in the Old Testament, of women who led of women whose prophetic words are recorded for us in the Bible. But, as I said, I only have so much time. So we're going to get to Jesus. When Jesus arrived on the scene, um, unfortunately, in that culture, women were regarded as subordinate and inferior to men. That was the reality of culture when Jesus stepped into the world. However, Jesus showed his value of women in how he taught and how he treated them. It was radically different than most men of that culture. Against the norm of his day, Jesus had women followers, disciples. That was crazy. Women played a significant role prior to Jesus' birth through the prophetic words of Anna. And after Jesus' resurrection, it was women who first witnessed Jesus alive and were the first to proclaim that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's very significant to me that God would choose sort of a bookend um, before he's born to announce his birth and to announce his resurrection. He chose women to do that. And then Jesus told his followers to wait for the Holy Spirit, right? He, he left and he said, wait for the Spirit. And at Pentecost, the Spirit, the Bible says, was poured out on the men and women who were waiting in that room in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Joel, Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 28, says this. And, there shall, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was poured out on men and women. And one of the, one of the outcomes of that, scripturally speaking, is that men and women then prophesied. So in other words, we see women prophetically speaking in the Old Testament. And now, with the coming of the Spirit, we see women prophetically speaking the words of God in the New Testament and in the church. And you might go, well, what does that mean to prophetically speak? Like, what does that gift mean? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3 tells us. It says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding 
and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Right? And so clearly, without question, God's Spirit has been poured out on men and women, and women including now have the gift of speaking out the words of God for the upbuilding of the whole church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 14, Paul makes it very clear that women are praying and prophesying, speaking the words of God to the church. In fact, he gives instructions. Here's how a woman is to pray. Here's how a woman is to prophesy in the church. Now, there's challenging verses in the Bible, right? I get that. That's why these things are debated. And in that same letter, Corinthians, Paul says in another place, I do not allow a woman to speak there to remain silent. And so it's like, how do you, what do you do with that? There must have been a specific situation he was speaking of because clearly he says, women, this is how you pray in the church and this is how you prophesy and speak the words of God. So silence must not have been maybe our, our, what we see as nobody can say anything ever. In the final chapter of Romans, Paul, he gets to the end of the letter and he begins to sort of just mention some names and thank people who've been in partnership and ministry with him. And it's significant when you look at that list. Among them, he commends Phoebe, whom he calls a deacon in the church. He mentions Prisca and Mary and Junia, who Paul says is respected among the apostles. Later, Paul speaks of Chloe and Nympha and Aphia, who are all leaders of house churches. Now, here's the thing we need to understand culturally is that all churches were house churches in that time, right? Churches did not meet like this. There were no rows of chairs. There was no pulpit or music stand, as we use, um, right? I mean, you know, sometimes we bring stuff into our culture and we say, this is how it is, but there, there was no such thing as a pulpit then. Um, all churches met They gathered together in homes, and that's where worship happened. That's where teaching happened. And there were clearly women who were leading in those churches. It is also extremely significant to me that Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, taught Apollos, who was a prominent church leader, who became a prominent church leader. Here's how it happened. Acts chapter 18, verse 26. But he, um, speaking of Apollos, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Here's what was going on. He was all zealous and all excited, but he had wrong doctrine. And so this man and woman, this husband and wife, taught him right doctrine, and he became, later on, Paul speaks of Apollos and goes, man, he he is commended for his knowledge. And he learned his knowledge from a man and a woman who taught him. Now, I share all of these things because I think that it gives some background and some context to the debated passages related to women and ministry. And the most debated verse on this topic is found in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's the context of that letter. Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy to give him guidance on dealing with some problems that are going on in the church. If you read through the New Testament, you realize the church is just beginning and and, and false teaching is oftentimes coming in and they're trying to sort of like keep the false teaching out and keep the true teaching in because it's just starting. And that's exactly what's happening in this church in Ephesus. There's there's specifically some false teaching and these false teaching teachers are infiltrating the church and Paul says they are targeting women. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. They're targeting women in particular with their false teachings. Let's read. So that's, that, that's context, okay? That's what's going on. He's writing to say, hey, these problems are going on. Here's how I instruct you and what you're to do in the church. So here is the passage that is at the heart of the debate of women and ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Starting at verse 8, here's what God's word says. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman who, who professes godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Verse 12 of what I just read is at the center of the women and ministry debate. And it says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now this is such a debated passage because it's a challenging section of scripture. Now, I know that in saying that, that many people would refute what I just said and would say that, no, 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 that's not true. This passage is crystal clear. Just read it and do what it says. It's clear. But the truth is, no matter where you land on what this passage means, you must explain something about how you arrived there. Listen, no matter where you arrive, where you personally, if you've ever looked into this, wherever anybody arrives on what this passage means, everyone, everyone has to explain how they got there. Which tells me it's not quite that simple then. Because if it's straightforward, then what about the prohibitions in that same paragraph on women having braided hair or jewelry? Or costly clothes. Or men, when you pray, you are to lift your hands. Now, most scholars now have deemed that those things are cultural for that time. So how can you pull one verse out of that list and say that one applies today and the rest do not? If it's clear, if it's straightforward, then what does it mean that women are saved through childbearing? I mean, if you're just to read that, and it's, well, it's, it's just, it's plain, just read what it says and do it, then that would seem to say that a woman who cannot or has not had a child can't be saved. Clearly, clearly, that is not what Paul is saying. That would be contradictory to what he's already said about salvation. So he must be saying something else. Perhaps it has something to do with the issues going on in that city and going on in that church specifically related to women. My point is simply this. It's not simple. And everyone must explain something about this passage. Everyone does. And the question at the very center of this debate is this. Did Paul mean that to be a timeless prohibition against women teaching or having authority over men Or was that intended to be for that church at that time? That is the center of the debate. Was this for all time? Or was it for then? That's the big question. We believe that these instructions were meant to be for the church in Ephesus at that time. Why? First, if Paul meant that women cannot teach ever, then why does he commend Priscilla, who taught Apollos? Why were so many women partnering with Paul in ministry and leading churches? That just doesn't seem consistent. Second, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I think it's significant that Paul used the Greek word Authentine, which is a very unusual word to have authority over. The word authority, it's a very unusual word that he uses. Here's the thing. Paul talks about being in charge of or having authority over uh, in, in several other places in the Bible, and he uses other Greek words that mean to be in charge of, to have authority over. But for some reason, Paul chose a very unique and rare word to use in this particular instruction. And here's the thing. It's used nowhere else in the Bible. 
One place, one verse in all the Bible, he uses this particular Greek word. So, usually you compare those words to other words in the Bible and go, what does he mean exactly? If it's not used anywhere else in the Bible, you have to look at other documents in the time of Paul. So when you look at Greek literature at the time Paul wrote this, in every instance that that word is used, it carries a negative connotation, and it means this, to usurp authority or to dominate over another. In every instance. In fact, good old King James Version got this correct in its interpretation. It says this, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man. Right? That's the meaning of that word, to usurp or to take or to dominate authority over a man. And in a church context where women are being targeted by false teachers, why might Paul have chosen to say, you cannot usurp authority and teach? Now the pushback is this, that Paul refers to the creation account after he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. He says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor or a sinner. Well, we know this, okay? That's confusing. What is he saying? Well, why does he say that? He's talking about teaching, and why does he refer back here? We know this, that God created man and woman equal. That Adam and Eve were both held responsible for sinning. So why in the world did Paul say this? And what does he mean? Well, some would say that because Paul points back to the creation account when he says that, that it means that this prohibition on women was God's intent from the very beginning. And so therefore, it is still in place to this day, right? That's that's kind of the basis of the argument, right? Because after he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, and then he refers back to the garden, back to creation, that the, the, the perspective is, then that means, by pointing back there, that this was prohibition, that this was something that God, God's heart communicated from the very beginning through the church and through today, right? And my simple question is this. If it was God's design from the beginning that woman that a woman should never teach, that a woman should never have authority over a man, then why did God use women in such significant ways in leading and teaching throughout the Bible? Why would God speak through women as prophets? Why would he do that? Why would God place Deborah as a leader over men and women over all of Israel? if his intent from the very beginning was that a woman is to never have authority over a man. That seems inconsistent to me. We don't know exactly what was going on. This is a challenging passage because we have one side of the story. We don't know exactly what was going on in that city. But it seems to me to be more consistent that Paul was placing a ban on a church where problems existed specifically related to women and not in every church for all time. Which explains why elsewhere, Paul is praising women for their partnership in the gospel. Now, let me just clear one thing up here. And I don't know that any theologians today would say this, but but back in the day, you look at older commentaries, (laughs) they said this. Clearly, clearly, Paul did not mean that because Eve was deceived, that women are all gullible, and prone to deception. Okay, that's not, clearly, that's not what he meant. Because if so, then why in the world would he allow women to teach other women and our most vulnerable children, (laughs) right? I don't think that makes sense. I believe that what was happening here was there was an issue going on in that church. We know there was. I believe we know it. And we know that it was targeting women. And there was things going on in that church that Paul had to communicate and say, we need to deal with this. And yes, he did say to not teach, not to usurp authority. But I do not believe that he meant that to be for all time and ever, but in that church and in that situation. And for these reasons that I have shared, we have sought 
And as we have sought to rightly understand God's word on this issue, we have concluded that it was not a universal command and that it is not unbiblical to allow a woman to teach men. We did not arrive at this decision lightly and we hold our position humbly. This is an important issue. But we do not view people who view this scripture differently as being unbiblical. We just see it differently. It is, after all, a debated matter. That's why this is debated. And why we believe that people can disagree on this and still fellowship together. So what does this all mean? What does this all mean? First, it means this, that we still believe, as we always have, that God's word is authoritative and we submit to it. We can agree on the bullseye, disagree on the stuff outside here, and still work together. Now, some of you in this room, as you've heard this message today, you are settled with this. This is causing you no heartburn. In fact, maybe in your heart, you're sort of celebrating um, these conclusions. For others of you, uh, you, you may never have really even thought about this or really studied this for yourself. And as a result, maybe right now you're feeling a little uneasy. Maybe this feels sudden. It feels scary. I understand. That's okay. I get it. Now, you may have arrived at your beliefs on the issue of women and ministry um, because it's what you've been taught since you were a child. <laughs> or maybe you've arrived at what you believe because it's what you've always believed. Or maybe you've arrived at what you believe on this because you have taken time to study this and look into this and you perhaps have landed at a different place than we have. I understand that. This is, after all, a debated issue. But if you have never taken time to study this for yourself, I want to encourage you and challenge you to do it. To prayerfully study different perspectives on this issue. It's so easy to sort of like read and study stuff that like, like, this is kind of how I already lean and how I already think, and so I'm going to read. But I would encourage you to look at stuff that's very different from what you think and you believe. That's what we did as we walked through this process. There's all kinds of information out there. There's hundreds of books written on this topic. If you go online, there's all kinds of information out there. Back in the back, on that desk on the way out, we, we've provided just a, just a handful, just a few resources. A um, couple of articles, some podcasts. Now, here's the thing you need to know that we intentionally put on there articles that say something very different than what I just said. Uh, we very intentionally put a podcast in there by somebody who believes differently than I do on this. I'm not afraid of that because I want you to look at both sides for yourself and to think about this, and, and if nothing else, at least say, oh, this is a debated issue, <laughs> right? And, and so those are available for you out there, and I would encourage you, to look at that, to study it, if you've never done that for yourself. If right now your soul is like, oh, what is going on? Maybe you're uneasy, you're fearful. I just want you to know there's no need to freak out. It's okay. We can talk about this as brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not going to show up next week and everything's going to be different. It's not. It's going to feel a whole lot like this week, although I won't be talking about this topic. <laughs> we currently have no women on our pastoral staff, and there will be no immediate changes. However, I want you to know that I, that we are excited to see gifted and equipped women raised up to use all their gifts in all the church. 
We are passionate about that. Because God needs us all to be about the work in this world. Now, you might have questions about this. And we want to do our best to answer those questions. In fact, right after this service, um, there's going to be sort of, we're going to kind of, you know, you can leave or you can go grab your kids. And if you want to hang around for a little bit, you can come back in here. And we're just going to have a little time of like some of our elders and, and, and pastors will be up here. And we can just answer questions that you might have about this or the implications of this. We'll have conversations about it. If you can't stay after today and do that, but you have questions or you start reading about this, you have questions, we're always available to do that. And in two weeks, on October 1st, there'll be another Q&A time where you can come and you can ask questions. You can say, what does this mean? And what does this mean for us? We can talk about it. So even today, you can do that. But get your kids first, I was told, or else (laughs) I'll be in trouble. Listen, um, I don't know how this strikes you, personally. And for some of you, this is new. This is not new for me. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a long time. In fact, I grew up in a tradition in the Assemblies of God where there were women pastors in my church that I grew up in, and women spoke. And this this is not new for me, but I know that it's new for us here at Smoky Point. We have occasionally had women speak. And, um, and, and so I, I just pray that as we think this through, that we would listen to what the Spirit is saying, that, that even if you land in a different place than I do, that's okay. I, I understand. But the question is, can, can we still fellowship together? Can we still be about this together? I do want you to know that as your pastor, I have been passionate about raising up and sending out people for the purpose of ministry. And I am passionate about doing, about raising up and releasing men and women to use all of their gifts in all of the church. Would you stand up with me? Jesus, Jesus, I thank you that this conversation is not at the center of this. We're clear, we're We're united. Churches around this world are united on the very core of our beliefs. Now, there's lots of other things, peripheral things that people believe differently, and there's different denominations and school of thought. But God, ultimately, for those of us who believe at the center of that target, whose faith is in you, Jesus, and you alone, we will be spending eternity together. And I can't wait for that. But until that day, I pray that you continue to use your church to be a Um, to be about what you've called us to. And I pray for your blessing. I pray for your encouragement over the men and women, the boys and girls of this church, that they might know that you you call them to yourself, that you gift them for service and release them for your purposes. And we celebrate that in Jesus' name. Amen.